Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you. I was telling first service that before service, I was telling our prayer team what a joy it is to have such a beautiful February day. It just makes me wish we had big windows, floor to ceiling, light shining in to enjoy it. But then again, I realize that might be why a lot of people aren't here at this service. So maybe I'm kind of glad you're here. So thank you. Thank you for, for joining us and, and doing this, even though God has provided such a wonderful day outside. I pray we get to enjoy it much later today. Um, you know, as I was thinking through this passage and this where Paul has us, the fact that we're only in this third sentence in Ephesians, it made me start thinking about how we encourage one another. And I think we often you know that, that struggle, that turmoil of how do you encourage someone uh, when you see them going through something hard. I think we've all, all wondered, what do I say? What do I, what do I do when there's an acute moment going on? And we try to say things like, I'm praying for you. Or, I hope you know that we love you. And sometimes that simple answer really is just what someone needs to know, that, that they know you're with them, that you care about them. And we often try to find just some way to connect, to empathize, and to help people know that we are there for them and that they matter to us. And yet, what do you do to encourage someone when things are going well? You know, what do you say to someone when they don't really need anything fixed in the moment, when, when life is chugging on, things are okay? What do you point them towards in that moment? Some of you are really good at that. Some of you are good at encouraging just for the sake of encouraging. I, I've been the recipient of that, and I really appreciate that. I've seen Bren do that well. So many of our elders do it well. I, I think that is such an amazing talent because I'm sad to say I'm not great at it. Um, it it's, it's not that I'm constantly walking around mad or disappointed at people. In fact, in that regards, I'm probably going to be very quick to tell someone if there's something going on. Uh, but I, I think I, I keep moving on when things are good and forget to stop and engage. I, I'm pressing forward with a plan and a goal of where to go. In fact, when I think about my life, so often I think that Philippians 3 is just over-realized for me. This idea that brothers and sisters do not consider that I've made it my own, meaning salvation. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I think I do that too quick sometimes. I do that quickly in every area of my life, whether it's needing to repent of sins, whether it's stop and appreciate the people that God has put around me or just appreciate who he is and what he's doing. I don't want to just keep racing on. I want to stop and be an encouragement to others. And I know that's something that's been hard for me, especially those who are probably close to me. and something that I want to learn to grow in. And so as I came to this, this section this morning, I just really praise God that Paul seems to be good at this, or at least he's good at it on paper, hopefully the way we all would hope that we could look good if we were to write something down. You know, Paul in this section is encouraging the believers in Ephesus by praying for them. And in doing so, he is modeling for me and you and how to encourage one another and as believers in particular. If you're like me, then this passage would be really helpful in thinking about how to care better for others in, in normal, good, natural moments that we are together. But I think that all of us need encouragement specifically on the how and the what to encourage one another with, both in bad times and good times. You know, Paul points the Ephesians and he points us to a particular aspect of God, and he does that through prayer. And prayer is what we're going to see this morning is one of our best ways to exhort and encourage each other as we come to God for one another. You know, our section again this morning is just one long sentence. We've had a small sentence from Ephesians 1 to Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3 through 14 is a whole nother long sentence. And then 15 through 23 is another long sentence. And today we're going to take this entire sentence in one sermon. So we're going to read it together, then we're going to break it down in pieces. So here's where he starts. He says, For this reason... 
Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul has just finished praising God for bringing salvation to the Ephesians, to the believers. And he starts this section with this phrase. He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Now, Paul has spent a lot of time with the Ephesians and he's continued to get reports from them about them. And something has been characteristic about them in his mind. They have real faith in Jesus and real love towards one another. You know, in this section, Paul is using language that we see again and again kind of in Paul's prayer areas. He talks about faith and hope and love. Uh, we've seen that in Romans 5, and then we see it also in places like 1 Thessalonians and Galatians when he talks about the believers there. He says this, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Or to the Galatians, he says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. And this, this faith, hope, and love becomes what Paul praises emblematic for all believers. It's a hope that Paul talked about in Ephesians, 1, or Ephesians 11 through 14. A hope that comes from our adoption as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And a hope that comes from our being chosen and predestined. And it's meant to be worked out in our faith in Jesus and our love for God and one another. In fact, faith worked out is always seen in love. Love of God, love others. You've probably heard that phrase a time or two here. You know, when, when we looked at the book of James, we saw how we should be concerned if our faith doesn't have loving works. You know, faith that is alive is alive when works spring forth from it. And importantly, loving one another is a crucial aspect of our walk with Jesus Christ. Now look what Jesus himself said in John 13. He said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Jesus says this is exactly how people will know who are his, who he has chosen and loved and who love him back. And that's exactly what Paul is seeing in the Ephesians. So that just brings me naturally to our first question this morning. Do you have the kind of faith that is shown in our love, particularly shown in our love for all of the saints? So that's the kind of love Paul is talking here. And, and here, all of the saints means Jews and Gentiles. For Paul, seeing God being able to bring together these two very different people groups that, that would actually want to be with one another, worship and praise God together, was amazing. Now, clearly, that's not the biggest problem of our day. So we have to look at this and say, today, how can we love all of God's people in our context? 
all of the saints who put their faith in Christ Jesus? How do we love Democrats and Republicans and independents? How do we love egalitarians and complementarians? How do we love extroverts and introverts? People who parent exactly like you and people who don't. People who spend money like you and people who don't. I mean, pick your dichotomy. They abound in our lives. Different ways that God's people have been made different. Can you see those differences as ultimately superfluous? You know, accounting as nothing in light of the glory of what God has done for you in Jesus. And can you find it compelling to love across those lines that the largest common denominator that a watching world might see is our faith in Jesus. And part of what should make Christian community compelling and part of what should make it different is that God's varied people, people of different ages, different preferences, different ways that we've been made, different priorities at different times, different ways of working out our faith and the best wisdom that we each have, that these people would lay those differences aside every week that we might love and care for one another and point each other to Jesus Christ. We, we are entering into a heightened season of this question right now as our political year in the U.S. ramps up. And we're going to talk more about that next week as the elders do a panel on politics in the church. But the question that you can ask yourself this morning is, would someone, if they knew you, if they looked at your social media feed, if they heard the conversations you were talking about offline and looked at the people that you relate to, would they say that you are characterized by your love towards all of God's saints? all of his people and their varied ways of loving him. I mean, for me, just those first comments, when Paul is even talking about how he views the Ephesians and how I pray he would view us should move us to prayer. <laughs> because I don't always act that way. I don't always love God's varied people in the varied ways that he has them walk in their lives. You know, Paul looks at the Ephesians and he sees real faith demonstrated by love of God and love towards one another. And I love what one commentator said about Paul here. He said, he, Paul, recognizes that the Christian growth of his readers, as well as the furtherance of his own ministry of the gospel, is wholly dependent upon the living God, who gives generously to his children when they call upon him in prayer. So for Paul, his first choice, in fact, really his only choice, is to come to God in prayer when he sees believers believing and loving God and loving one another. So Paul chooses to pray. He says this. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Uh, he, he restates this statement because they both mean the same thing. His idea is that to give thanks means to remember them in his prayers, and to remember them in his prayers means to give thanks to God for them and what he's been doing in their lives. We're going to see later on in Ephesians 6 how Paul encourages us to pray at all times without ceasing in the Spirit, to ask God for what we need. Prayer matters to Paul. And it matters for us. I think we often pray and think about praying for people that we know in our lives who have yet to put their faith in Jesus. I think we think to pray for ourselves and others when, when there's an acute moment and something hard is going on. But do you regularly pray for yourself and others you know simply because you're a believer? Because God has loved you and you love God. That is Paul's first go-to when he thinks about the reality of his own being loved by God and his love for God and, and, and the fact that the people around him also love God and are loved by God. He's just moved to prayer. Go to God himself and talk to him. 
I think you and I, I think we often see one another and are not moved to prayer for one another as a regular habit because we underestimate the power of prayer and the necessity of prayer in our lives. And that's what Paul is going to say to the Ephesians. What he says he prays for them is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, Paul is talking here again, the same kind of language we saw earlier in Ephesians 1, of God, the God of Christ, the Father of glory. And he reminds us that we, we've already had our eyes of our hearts enlightened. We, we've come to faith. We've seen who Jesus is, what he's all about, how he has loved us. And then he prays that God would give the Ephesians, would give us two things, that he would give us the spirit of wisdom, and that he may give you the spirit of revelation, And then he asked that God would give us that wisdom and revelation, particularly in the knowledge of him in Christ. It's interesting because we know that Paul has already told us in Ephesians 1 that we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Jesus Christ. That that is part of our election, it's part of our inheritance, and God has surely done all those things through the cross and Christ's resurrection to power. And so what's amazing here is that Paul doesn't pray for God to give us something new. There's no second thing that we need to know, no second pouring out of God's grace and mercy. Paul wants us to press into this knowledge that we've already been given in Jesus Christ. We don't need a fresh blessing. We need to more fully comprehend and bask in the blessing that God has performed in the blessing he has already given us, namely knowing Jesus And praying that Paul is bringing us back to this God who is glorious, this Father of glory, God of glory that we see in Psalms 29 and Acts 7, the King of glory that we see in Psalms 24. And using that language, Paul is bringing us back to this all-powerful, almighty God, the God that we saw in Romans 1, who from whom and through whom all things were created and point back to him. Paul is looking back up to that opening of Ephesians again, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as a reminder that God has already given us every blessing in Jesus. And so we can ask boldly, we can pray for God to give us what we need to grow. Because God's grace, power, and glory are unlimited, he is more than adequate to meet our needs. It's our job as Christians to continue to seek to know the beauty of Jesus Christ. If we were to pray for one thing, it should be that all believers would continue to press in to know the breadth, the depth, the height of what God has done for us in Jesus. That's the language Paul's going to use later in Ephesians 3.18. And you've heard me say this quote before, and I love it. I paraphrase it often. If making disciples (coughs) happens through gospel-centered going, baptizing, and teaching... The semantic distinction between evangelism and discipleship is superfluous. Disciples are made whether for the first time, as we see in Romans, or excuse me, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, the first time, or for the 50th time. That's what Paul's talking about now. They are made through the gospel. We are people of the gospel. If our original knowledge of Jesus came through God's work or choosing and changing us, we still need that same power to work in us that we might grow more in our knowledge of Jesus and all that he is and has done for us. Do you believe that you need to continue to look to God in prayer, not just for the hard times and the difficult moments, but as your constant supply as you keep seeking him to know Jesus better? If God gave us Jesus 
in all this power, glory, and mercy, he can surely continue to give us understanding of his power, glory, and mercy today. We have such a blessing that we can look to our God, this God who has blessed us so much, and know that he wants to hear from us, that he wants to help us, and that he wants to continue to grow us. And all of that, all of that is done in Jesus Christ himself. He is the center of it all. He's the object of our knowing. He is the one that we are going to see reigns in power and will give us all that we need to know him rightly. It isn't just anything that, that Paul is praying that we would see and have knowledge of in Christ. Here he says this. He says, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. I mean, there's three things here. I mean, the first, that we might know what is the hope to which he's called us. Second, what are the riches of, of God's glorious inheritance in the saints? And then third, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believes according to the working of his great might? You know, the first two that are listed here are things that Paul's already been talking about in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. You know, first, Paul prays that we might see and know more about our hope in Jesus. It's what we were talking about these last several weeks, this hope that we have because God chose us and brought us to himself, and this hope in knowing that we have a future with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And what's amazing is that this hope is grounded in the past. It's grounded in the past in God's reality of calling us. That's where we see the fullness of that realized. And then on the other end, just last Sunday, we were talking about our inheritance in God. This idea that there's two sides to it, that both we, we inherit something, we get God as a very good person and a place with his grace, but also the other side where we are God's inheritance. And as we were talking about this last week, it seems that Paul started first with the idea of our inheritance, what we received from God by being able to be his sons and daughters, having a future with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And here we see the flip side of that. He's talking here about the inheritance God has. He wants us to dwell on that and think about this reality that we are God's inheritance and where our hope was grounded in the past, in being chosen, predestined by God before time with what he would do. That's where we see that fully realized, where we see this, this idea of being an inheritance fully realizes in the future. It's a future realization as, as we see Jesus come back someday and we get to be with him forevermore in the new heavens and the new earth with a new body that we might love him and know his love perfectly. And then this third phrase, this third thing that he's talking about, this immeasurable greatness of God's power is talking about everything happening from past to future and the overlapping of how we see that today in our lives. And Paul says that we should see in Christ the immeasurable greatness of God's power and we should be seeing it right now. And his prayer is that we would see more about this power, understand it better and treasure it. That we should see how God is beginning to unpack in our very lives his power, both in our salvation and our justification, how he's made us righteous, but also through our sanctification, how he's conforming us to be more like himself. And we should be seeing his great power. Now, that's the piece Paul hasn't talked a whole lot about yet in Ephesians, though we're only in the third sentence. And that's why he's going to continue to unpack that idea through the rest of this sentence, that we might better understand the very power of God. 
You know, Paul wants us, wants us to see how we're in this overlapping of the ages, a moment where we are seeing God's past power come true through Jesus's life and death and resurrection at the cross and how we're seeing his future reality begin to break through as we see ourselves changed, walk with him daily and have hope in the future of where that will be true in a new way. That is another reason that we pray. When we believe that the God who moved in power before creation in choosing me and you, in creation itself through history, in Christ at the cross, and in the future in creating the new heavens and the new earth is at work today in power for us. And we can ask him to help because he is listening, he is active, and he is moving. God's very power for us in Jesus is what he describes in the rest of this sentence. God's power displayed and continuing to be displayed for us in Jesus. It's a power that he says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You know, Paul is doing something very cool here. Paul is looking at the expanse of what God has done. He's looking at it from the past to the future. He's looking at it today. He's looking at it in every sphere, and all he is seeing everywhere he looks is Jesus. I mean, here, Paul continues to use directional and spatial language to describe the overall totality of God's power to us. You know, Christ was raised from the dead, going from low to high. He is seated at the right hand of God in authority and power. Everything is under his feet. He set him as head over and above the church. All that spatial language is screaming to us authority, power, mightiness. This Jesus is the almighty God, the all-powerful God, We can trust in him. We can look to him and we can pray and petition him. There is no thing, nowhere that Christ does not have authority over. You know, in this last section, Paul is showing us two ways God demonstrated his power and then two manifestations that come out of that of his power. You know, the first demonstration was his raising Jesus from the dead. You know, we, we have seen in Scripture where God has kept people from the dead. Enoch walked with God and was no more. Elijah was taken up in the chariot. But, but other than a couple examples in the ministry of Elisha where people are raised from the dead, which is, again, pointing to the ministry of Jesus, that idea tends to be reserved to be wrapped around Jesus Christ and what he has done and how Christ's resurrection points to our future reality. We see this in Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And because Christ was raised from the dead, we don't fear death. We can trust God in this life, whether we live or die, knowing that to be away from the body is to be with Christ, and that God is keeping us no less than he kept Christ his entire life for the purpose he had for him. Now, the second demonstration of God's power in this section was Christ being seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father. We see there that Jesus is God. He is over all spiritual powers, angels and demons, and over all names, any one of importance today or of importance to come. 
He is the most important one. And we know that He is there because of what's prophesied in Psalm 110. It says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn that it will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment amongst the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Jesus, we are told by Paul in Philippians 2.9, has the name above all names. This is truly the overlapping of the ages, where even though we don't see him reigning in power that way yet, we know that it is sure and true, and we see it breaking into our lives and the lives of those around us in a myriad of ways all the time. And we're told here by Paul that these demonstrations of power have two manifestations, two ways that we see it working out in this world. First, we see it manifest as Christ now has everything under his feet. He has truly become the new Adam. He's become what we were meant to be. As Psalm 8 says, it says, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man, Christ, that you care for him. Yet you've made him, Christ, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion. That's garden language, right? In Christ, we are back to the garden, full dominion and power being given to him over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. It's amazing. Jesus has become what Adam was meant to be so that through him, we can experience that same thing, that we might actually have some dominion in any aspects of our life. And even more, Christ is the head of his church. He is not a detached ruler, but as Paul says here, he relates to us as his own body. He loves and he cares for us. There's a beautiful contrast here. Uh, we see that all things, friends and enemies, are under his feet, meaning under his authority. Yet as his friends, as believers, we are part of his own body. Something he loves for, cares for, wa wants to demonstrate his love towards the church, me and you. We receive our fullness, our meaning and purpose from being in Christ. As Paul says here, we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we know that Christ is being filled wholly, entirely, absolutely, or in every way by God. And that we are being filled up by that same thing from God through Christ in our life. In Paul's prayer and remembrance of the Ephesians, he is exploding our vision of Jesus Christ and specifically all the spheres and ways he is preeminent in this universe. And we may not be able to see that all the time today, but God is in control 
and all authority is found in Christ. From before time to the end of time and filling up today, God is all-powerful and capable. And from the grave to the throne of God and over every enemy as their king and over his body as our loving head, Jesus is in control. And all of that should motivate our prayer. should motivate us to prayer. That is what it does for Paul. Our life, simply because we have put our faith in Jesus, needs prayer. We need to be grounded in the power of God, in his past goodness of securing hope, his future goodness of securing an inheritance, and his present good displays of power to us in Jesus Christ. That is the God that we pray to. Friends, I pray that you come away from this section of Ephesians knowing there is no reason not to pray. Or positively, there is every reason you need to be steeped in prayer in your life to Jesus Christ. The same God that saved us in Jesus, which if you know yourself was a miracle of miracles, is still at work in our lives today. And we need him to help us to see and love our Jesus more each day. The God who opened and enlightened our hearts and eyes is the only one who can still enlighten and open them. You know, friends, I pray that you see, as Paul says, one, our hope and our calling. Two, our value as his inheritance, his very beloved sons and daughters. And three, his power working today in Jesus. And then pray boldly to God. And because I don't think I have to remind you as much to pray about those needs that you have in your lives or those difficult moments, I want to petition you today to pray simply for believers and for yourselves, that you would know and see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ again and again and again, that it would become more deep, more real, and more full for you in Christ Jesus. I am convinced that if we knew the gospel truly, fully, and deeply, our lives and our church would be radically changed. It would affect every corner of our life and it would embolden us to love God and love others in a way that would be truly life-changing. Would you pray with me? Father, may our prayers become like Paul's prayers. Would our prayers be emboldened by our knowledge of you and the totality of your being as we see in the power and authority of Jesus Christ? Lord God, would we grab onto the secureness of our future hope because you have called us? Would we latch onto the beauty of being your inheritance, your very sons and daughters for yourself and for your glory? And Lord God, would that change the way that we approach you? Would we have prayers that focus simply on being your children, your inheritance, and asking that you would continue to open our eyes and our minds to see and know you and to love you? Lord God, would you give us that kind of a glimpse even today? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.